We return to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with our guest, William Darity. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, the premier community station of the nation. And we return to our discussion with Dr. Darity as he reflects on how slavery and the transatlantic slave trade helped build the wealth of nations. So slavery was a, a springboard for American economic growth. This is particularly evident in thinking about the full effects of the cotton sector and the importance of slave-grown cotton for American economic development. Exactly. But there's you know, a number of dimensions of this that we can talk about. And that's the beginning of the racial wealth gap, which is consolidated in the aftermath of the Civil War when black Americans who were newly emancipated did not receive the 40-acre land grants that they were promised while one and a half million white American families received land patents in the western part of the United States for 160-acre lots uh, that became the foundation for their intergenerational wealth. Yeah, that's interesting because in the systemic racism part of it, you know, you could say the same thing about what, what came out of World War II, right, with the GI Bill and who benefited by race and who did not uh, at, at anywhere close to the rate that maybe you can speak to. But I wanted to go back to what you were just talking about. I thought that was really interesting, the the, the racial inequality in the world at large versus inside some of these more progressive, so to speak, countries. You know, it's interesting. I, I did that work on, I don't think it's changed much, but the CIA fact book back in July 2009, you know, that, you know, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, of course, was black, namely Haiti. It had the worst life expectancy in the hemisphere. But then also when you went to look at the worst life expectancy in the world, there was only 42 nations that had worse life expectancy than Haiti and 39 were on the continent of Africa. And with infant mortality, you see, I found a similar deal, which of course is tied to this poverty and all that. But of the 42 worst, only only Haiti and four other countries of the world were not from the African continent. So the imperial colonialization, and I started the show off talking about the New World, obviously is throughout the whole world. And the people and the countries that are most abused by that system are the ones in Africa, as we just outlined here. And it's just it was shocking to me that, that Libya, which had the highest human development index in all of Africa, was the country that Obama chose to overthrow in the NATO deal for quote-unquote humanitarian reasons, which were later revealed to be fabrications. So it really kind of speaks to this systemic oppression or whatever you would like to call that. But can you speak to that? And then also, can you speak to the disproportionate disadvantages that African-Americans versus whites accrued following uh, the World War II and the GI Bill and those benefits that were connected to that? Yeah, but I also want to tie back your comments about the international order to Malcolm X's vision of the world, particularly the vision that he was articulating in the uh, in the final months of his life, where he was talking about the nature of international imperialism Absolutely. and the way in which it had produced inequality across countries mm-hmm. uh, and regions of the world. And so he was taking on a much more global view of the way in which processes of colonialism and imperialism had created their effects across that, across across the world. That's and, an outstanding uh, insight. I mean, he, he even coined the term in his spe- speech of uh, in February of of, of uh, 
his last year of life, he called it the international power structure. And he, he, he talked about how these nations like France and UK and the US, I mean, I extrapolated from that, that, that the that the people in power have more an interest with other people in power in these international power structure relationship than they do with their own fellow citizens and continue to accrue that wealth accordingly. Yeah, and and I I would add that you you mentioned the fact that at one stage of Malcolm's visits to West Africa, he met with Kwame Nkrumah, who at the time was the prime minister of Ghana, and it's actually Kwame Nkrumah who created another phrase or term that's really relevant to this type of conversation, which is the descriptor uh, neo-colonialism, uh, to refer to the conditions of the relations between the imperial powers and their former colonies in the aftermath of the period of independence. Very good. Like keeping people in power that continue to serve as kind of vassal leaders to the international capital that's controlled by that international power structure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a fascinating insight. I, I did not know that. Yeah. So Neo, yeah, I mean, it just means new. It's just a new form of, it's an evolved form of Right. What, what so, I mean, there's there's an interesting recent parallel in literature in the United States where Douglas Blackman has written a book called Slavery by Another Name. And there are folks who have used the phrase neo-slavery, where in Blackman's particular case, he is examining the convict leasing system mm-hmm. as a mechanism for restoring conditions of slavery. Very and this is, of course, entirely legal under the terms of the 13th Amendment because of its exception clause, right. which uh, permits slavery in the event that an individual has been convicted of a crime. And so, uh, Even if it's not yeah. a crime, but you're convicted of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's neo-slavery, there's neo-colonialism, and uh, they arise out of the attempt on the part of those individuals who represent a long-established power structure whether it was the interest of the, the Confederacy and the slaveocracy in the United States, or whether it is in the interest of, of maintaining, to the extent possible, colonial exploitation on a global scale. Individuals are trying to preserve those arrangements under circumstances in which formally those arrangements no longer exist. Yeah, and I think the barometer of all that, I mean, it shows that what you're saying makes so much sense, is the distribution of wealth in the world. With COVID, the people that, what the top 0.1% of those that just got a huge increase in their wealth over just that one year. That is the nature of a system that is beyond repair, according to Malcolm's analysis the last few months of his life. Whether it is an economic recession or gross economic downturn or a pandemic like COVID, why is it that the majority population, and particularly the poor and people of color, that is who gets hit the hardest economically, materially, health-wise, and therefore spiritually than those that have greater material basis in which to more resiliently deal with these downturns. Meanwhile, post-crisis, the data is clear to those who really seek the truth that takes vastly longer time, often measured in decades, to recover their losses while the most wealthy, possessing opulent 1% or so recover their losses and, in fact, increase their share of the pie within a year or so. If we are honest, we must strongly consider that this is the character of a system that perpetuates systemic racism and inequality 
and is arguably irredeemable because of that. That is what Malcolm is discovering and articulating and strongly suggesting and saying during the last year of his life. And that's why I think Malcolm became so discontented. And, and by the way, I, I, I totally agree with your analysis of his relationship with the African leaders and seeing the problem as international as well, because he speaks to that. The African-American problem in the United States as being really a human rights issue that he wanted to internationalize in his last year as well. Can you go back and just tell us a little bit? So we have this wealth inequality and we have these things that have accelerated it. And you mentioned following the Civil War, the promises that were broken. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on the more modern day post-World War II promises and benefits that were disproportionately made available that continue to create or contribute to the wealth inequality that you and your co-author, uh, Kirsten Mullen, eloquently argue will not be reversed without some type of reparations program? Yeah, I, I had mentioned, I think, that in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, there was an unmet promise to the formerly enslaved of 40-acre land grants. But at the same time, 160-acre land grants were being made to one and a half million white families in the Western territories. And those that latter set of land grants were uh, produced by the activation of the Homestead Act of 1862. And so you had an asymmetry. You had newly emancipated blacks who had no resources whatsoever coming out of slavery, not receiving a promised allocation of land of 40 acres, while a large number of white families receive four times that size allotment in the Western territories. And in a sense, that's the moment that really provides the precipitant for the types of racial wealth differences we observe today where in the present moment, the average black household has $840,000 less in net worth than the average white household. Mm -hmm. So the starting point really is the failure to conduct a universal land reform at the end of the Civil War. But in the 20th century, the federal government shifts away from building assets on the basis of land allocation to building assets on the basis of home ownership. And a couple of pieces of legislation are particularly relevant to this process. One is the law that established the Federal Housing Administration, and the second is the law that established the, the compensatory package for the folks who had served the nation during World War II, what we colloquially refer to as the GI Bill. And both the practices of the Federal Housing Administration and the provisions of the GI Bill to support home ownership were applied in a grossly discriminatory fashion, in such a fashion that black returning veterans were largely excluded from the home buying provisions of the GI Bill, with the net effect that in a state like Mississippi, out of 3,000 returning veterans who took advantage of the GI Bill's home buying provisions, there were only two returning black veterans who were given uh, access to those benefits. And that was not unique to Mississippi. That kind of disproportion was characteristic of the mobilization of the GI Bill on a national level. And this was because the bill could be administered with vast amounts of local discretion. To get the bill passed, there had to be an agreement to placate the Southern congressman that there would be uh, 
significant decentralization of the administration of the bill and that local authorities would be able to make judgments about who would receive the bill, the bill's benefits and in what amounts. Mm -hmm. And so that led to very explicit racial discrimination in the administration of the bill. And it meant that the federal government, once again, was promoting white wealth accumulation and not promoting black wealth accumulation. And just to sum up the show, since we are running out of time, I promise we wouldn't keep you too late. You mentioned the post-Civil War period and then the post-World War II period and these structured unequal distributions that disadvantaged African-Americans more than any other group. But also, I think it's really important to also consider what occurred before the Civil War, you know, that whole period of time where there was no way that an African-American person could accrue any wealth. It's almost like, you know, we started a marathon and everyone else took off 200 years earlier uh, on this deal. So, you know, you start from a a completely disadvantaged position, and then it gets aggravated by these other issues. And so if you don't mind, in the next just two or three minutes, the strategy of reparations, and I know John Conyers was promoting that, and I just wanted an update as to where you see where that stands, and if it is not pursued and accomplished, is there any real reason to expect that this wealth inequality will change much over the next decade? So, you know, the argument that we make in, in the pages of From Here to Equality is that that the only significant way in which you could actually address the wealth inequality in the United States is by a regime of direct compensatory payments to the descendants of those persons who were enslaved in the United States, because the descendants are continuing to be living victims of the cumulative intergenerational effects of American racism. And so that's the only real way you can do this because other kinds of measures that are indirect or constitute universal programs that would benefit all, even if they might have a disproportionate benefit for black Americans, that disproportionate benefit's not going to be sufficient to make much headway in closing the racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a direct program that targets black American descendants of U.S. slavery in such a way that you distribute a sufficient level of funds to erase the racial wealth gap. I don't think that there's any other significant way to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Dirty, thank you so much for your time. I want to remind listeners, we've been visiting with the distinguished Dr. William Dirty. He's with the Samuel Bois Cook, professor of public policy. He has written a number and co-authored a number of important pieces that address so many of the myths that I continue to hear day in and day out about why African-Americans are so far behind the curve when it comes to these wealth inequality issues. And, but most powerfully, I think your book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, is an important resource to address all of those issues in one book. And it references all of those articles that you've co-authored as well and authored yourself. So I wanted to thank you very much for making yourself available once again. And if people want to access your book, is there a way to do that other than just Googling your name? Or what would be your recommendation if people want to take the content of your book? Well, well, the book is the book is available. Uh, I guess, as as they say, wherever books are sold, you could you could communicate directly with our publisher, the University of North Carolina Press, your local independent bookstore, 
or you know you could go to the big box Amazon and order the book. All of those are locations where the book is available. Well, listen, thank you for getting that into a book form, you and Miss Mullen, and it's a a hugely important resource. You know, Malcolm would be very, very appreciative of of the analytical critique that you provide within those pages. So thank you for that, and thanks once again for for joining us, and we'll look forward to staying in touch with you and maybe get you back on a a little bit later down the road to talk about the the Biden administration and, you know, if, if, if it's more than just words that are being thrown around here. So I appreciate your time very much, Dr. Darity. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you always uh, for having me on, bringing light into darkness. Well, you brought it, brother. Thank you. As a postscript to our fascinating visit with Dr. William Darity, in conclusion, I just wanted to add and reiterate, I think it's an important concept to use today when we think about the international power structure that Malcolm X enunciated back in his day. We talked about, by 1922, the UK, the empire in which the sun never set, was the largest empire in history. And when we look at it today, we don't have such a country that has colonies throughout the whole world where the empire never sets. But if you look at the 700 plus military bases that the United States has across the whole world, then the sun never sets on US military bases. And comparatively to the rest of the world, no country comes close in the number of military bases. So these terms, international power structure and neocolonialism, are very closely connected, with neocolonialism just indicating new ways to dominate countries in the 21st century. And that is accomplished by making sure that we put into power through coup, through military invasion, through meddling in the affairs of other countries that we've documented many, many times on bringing light into darkness, examples of all of that, create governments that support the interests of large capital in the form of this international power structure. And this concluding segment tonight seeks to further outline those issues. If we go back to the issue of international power structure, we spoke about how the New World was colonized first by the Spanish and Portuguese who were then replaced largely by the United Kingdom and France. And then, really, the United States was a junior partner, even as late as the St. Dominique Black Slave Revolt that consummated in the creation of Haiti in 1803 or 1804. And at that time, it was a French colony, as we indicated, and it really amassed all the wealth. Uh, It was the most profitable colony in world history, largely creating the wealth of France. And without going back into those specifics, it is important to point out how the other Western international power structure nations rallied to the support of France. I mean, the UK sent troops, uh, of course, Napoleon uh, in uh, the the French... uh, leader, had all sorts of troops that were sent. The Spanish contributed efforts to uh, put down this slave rebellion. Even the United States as a junior partner sent considerable amounts of monies, but they were not yet in a position to be a, a military power. And why did all these international power structure nations circle the wagons in order to put down the slave rebellion in St. Dominique? It was to protect slavery, the golden goose of all their wealth. That's real history. And in fact, 
The Monroe Doctrine of 1823, some 20 years later, marked the transition of the United States from being a junior partner to being the major power in the Western Hemisphere and clearly suggesting that this is our hemisphere to exploit and all you other more junior international power structure nations better pay heed. But despite all of those interventions, the Black Revolt of St. Dominique succeeded, although it left a devastated economy. And the point is, is that the wealth of these nations, as we pointed out in this show, is largely been on the backs of the slave trade. And so you write history books that are written from the perspective of the conquistador. And so we have the images created that civilization overcame barbarism or that civilization ultimately prevailed. Yet there is no greater form of barbarism than the slavery and the slave history that is greatly swept under the rug. And I think it's striking in the context of our discussion on Malcolm X tonight that Malcolm X is always perceived and portrayed through image making as being the violent person that he really was not. As Dr. Darity indicated, he never killed anyone. Yet what he spoke out against was the unrelenting violence of U.S. and Western imperialism, particularly on the African continent. Uh, and he spoke in his last number of speeches about the Congo specifically. And this was consistent with what Dr. King had stated in his Beyond Vietnam speech of April 4th, 1967, when he said, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own country. And in this image making, I wanted to end our show tonight with a Tommy Boy release that takes excerpts mainly from a 1965 February 14th speech in which Malcolm talks about so many of these contradictions that African-Americans face. He talks about tokenism, granting the right to vote and those types of things. I mean, those are nice. But at the end of the day, if we're all sitting at the table, are we all diners? No, you know, we're not all diners until you let me dine. And of course, he was referring to equal rights in the form of the ability to get material sustenance and those those types of things. He also talked about the image making of, of misrepresenting who he was and really any opposition to the status quo. He indicates how they can take one word out of what you say, ignore all the rest, and then begin to magnify it all over the world to make you look what you actually aren't. And he indicated that he was very used to that. And finally, on the issue of values, which I think is really important when it comes to his, the influence of the, the Muslim faith in his last couple of visits to Africa in his last year of life, he indicated that he judged people on their deeds, not on the color of their skin and encouraged everyone to do the same. He said, we are not anti-American. We are anti or against what America is doing wrong in other parts of the world, as well as here. And what we did in the Congo was wrong. It's criminal. He goes on to say, that's wrong. Now you are not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you cannot face reality. Wrong is wrong, no matter who does it or who says it. And this is a similarity too with Dr. King in that Malcolm came to embrace the priority of principles over blind national allegiances. Right is right and wrong is wrong, no matter whoever does it. He also talks more about the co-optation many times. He says, so in my conclusion, I would like to point out that the approach that was used by the administration right up until today, by even the present generation, was designed skillfully 
to appear that they were trying to solve the problem when they actually were not. They would deal with the conditions, but never the cause. They only gave us tokenism. Tokenism benefits only the few. It never benefits the masses, and the masses are the ones that have the problems, not the few. And then the violence that Malcolm refers to does not include just invasions and coups and international conflicts and being on the wrong side of them, but also talks again about the international power structure defending its own. In addition to the colonial exploitation of Africa uh, by the Portuguese, the French, and the UK, and the other European colonial powers, such as Belgium, it is instructive to, to examine who supported South Africa and apartheid and enabled them to wreck the type of damage they did to the continent itself. And the U.S. vetoed a number of U.N. resolutions in 1979, a resolution that called for an end to all military and nuclear collaboration with the apartheid South African government. In 1982, U.N. resolutions condemned apartheid and calls for the cessation of economic aid to South Africa. Four resolutions to that issue were vetoed by the United States and the UK. In February 20th of 1987, the US and Britain vetoed Security Council resolution calling for binding sanctions against South Africa for its occupation of mineral-rich Namibia. In March 9th of 1988, the United States and Britain again vetoed a Security Council resolution that would have imposed an oil embargo and other sanctions against South Africa for its imposition of restrictions on 17 anti-apartheid groups. Think of the number of sanctions that the Obama government and the Trump government and the Biden government continue to wreck throughout the whole world. Yet this is the real character of a nation that supports and enables apartheid South Africa and consistently levies sanctions to nations across the world whose impact are on majority populations rather than the alleged governments they seek to target. And this is the nature of the international power structure where its agents, such as South Africa, apartheid, was protected while the image making suggested that our foreign policy was all about bringing democracy to the world. We close out with a short segment of Tommy Boy's Malcolm X. No sellout. Malcolm X. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. <laughs> 